Hi, this is Danielle from the Jaws Curator, and this is episode 126 of Art for Your Ear. This episode is supported by Saatchi Art, the world's largest curated online gallery offering original art by independent artists from around the world. You can pop over to saatchiart.com to see their beautiful lineup of both originals and prints. And also, you can pop over to limited.saatchiart.com to see all of their new limited edition prints. This episode is also co-sponsored by Thrive Art Studio. They have created a program called Thrive Mastermind for artists all around the world. They bring together groups of 10 women who meet every month online to talk about the ups and downs of being artists. If you are looking for this kind of support and accountability, head to their website, thriveartstudio.com. And speaking of Thrive, today I'm actually talking to one of the amazing women from my group of 10. Amy Henny Brown is a Canadian artist, teacher, and general smarty pants. We had actually scheduled a call because I wanted her paper nerd advice on how to take my collages to a much bigger size. In our last meeting, I'd been complaining about paper buckling and not knowing how to get around it, and Amy said, I do. So instead of doing that call and then having her on the podcast, I just smooshed it all together into this amazingly insightful and super long episode. Amy is currently at a residency in Montreal, so we're going to call her there and just jump right into my questions about big paper. Ready? Here we go. All right. That sounds awesome. Oh, yay. Yay. (laughs) How's your day going? It's great. Um, We have a fantastic little espresso machine in the (laughs) faculty lounge here where my studio is, so every day is a good day. Yeah, there you go. You just stand right (laughs) beside it. Pretty much. So, um, do you want to talk about big art first, or do you want to do podcast first? Um, why don't we talk about big art? Okay. First? That way, you've got uh, like all the questions that you want to chat about. We can make sure that we've got that covered. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, so, I guess like because those those pieces that were in this show that we were in together were gigantic that you did. Yeah, and those aren't the biggest ones. So, <laughs> yeah, no, there's um, there's a series of pieces that I've been doing where I'm building the collages, and then I take them apart, I scan all the pieces, I print them huge, and then I reassemble the collage. So they what? end up... Wait, yeah. say that again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how big is the original one? The original one is just like maybe 20 inches by 14 inches Okay. Uh, for those ones. And then once I scan them, print them out big, and reassemble them, they end up being about six feet tall. Holy crap. Yeah, they're about the same height that I am. So that's... And then what are they on, though? Um, I've been using this really cool material to print out uh, on called Tyvek. Um, and it's used for, like, FedEx envelopes. It's the same oh. stuff. It's like kind of glossy, but it's this laminated fiber that is made in two places in the world. Oh, my word. <laughs> and it's, it's this perfect combination of textile and paper because it accepts print beautifully. Like you can digitally print onto it, um, but it won't tear. So I can do really tiny, fine cuts with it, wow. um, but it won't tear apart. So I don't have to worry about having like dangly bits that might rip away. Right, right. But so do you send it somewhere or do you actually have that 
like, can you run that through your printer? Like, how do you get it printed? Usually it's, um, it's not done with heat, um, but it is a toner printer. Um, so it's not inkjet and okay. I buy it, I buy the Tyvek in rolls from Uline. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 And so they just, they, they have blank Tyvek and you, most people would be familiar with it from seeing it on like house wrap. Um, but it, I've been working with it cause you can sew it, you can weld it. It's awesome stuff. I've been working with it. How did you it. figure that out? Um, I'm trying to think of the first thing that I made with Tyvek. I was making these, um, these life, uh, preservers, these like life vests. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. As you do. <laughs> and, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Um, and I, I was actually in Vermont, um, while I was making them and I had bought a bunch of house wrap cause I, I go trawling in hardware stores for a lot of supplies. Um, and what I liked about the Tyvek, I had used it in bookbinding before as like a, cause it's waterproof. Okay. So I was like, oh, this will be neat stuff cause you can fold it and sew it. And I was doing these big, replicas of my grandma's house in Tyvek. Mm, wow. <laughs> so I started taking the offcuts from those big structures and sewing them into these life preservers. And the life preservers ended up being way more interesting than the house structures. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. And when was that? When were you doing that? Oh, gosh. So I would have been in Vermont in 2009. Oh, so, wow. So you've known about it for a while. Yeah, it's just this sort of magical stuff that keeps being very useful. No kidding. Okay, so you have your own printer. So you print, so you've got your things, you scan them. When you print them yep. out bigger on the stuff, you're printing it yourself. Uh, or I, like, because I haven't bought my own printer, I've okay. been sourcing out people who are willing to spool the Tyvek for me. Okay. Yeah. So it's usually, it's been, like, institutions a lot of people use it for sign making oh, um, because okay. it's, it's water resistant and you can print on it and it doesn't fade it's fairly archivally sound we use it we use um tyvek in archives a lot because it's a moisture barrier oh oh my yeah. god okay so you've got all these big pieces printed and then are yeah. you applying them back onto more tyvek i've been making these weird little apron shapes that I'm mounting all of the material back onto. And so the collage gets reassembled with yeah. its own, like just on itself. So I'm kind of putting, oh, I back, see. I'm putting back together almost like a jigsaw. Yeah. And then I'm mounting that final piece onto this apron shape. And I'm making the aprons right now out of uh, this kind of weird paper material called TerraSkin. Um, and TerraSkin is, it's a combination of adhesive and ground stone <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> that you can actually, um, and it's, it operates really similarly to Tyvek. It stretches and bends, but it doesn't tear and it's just much heavier weight. So I hang the apron in like a similar way that you'd hang a fabric apron on a wall. Like there's usually just one or two zip points. You hang the whole piece. And it's done. Okay. Oh, my word. And where do you get that? Is that a hardware store thing, too? No, no. That one's actually at Opus. TerraSkin? Yeah, yeah. It's T-E-R-R-A and then skin. Skin. Okay. Yeah. Opus. So like, 
Yeah. I just started, I noticed that they had some there and I was like, can I get a little sample to do some tests on? Um, cause I, I, I'm a big nerd about testing. I material. know you are. I know you are. <laughs> this whole conversation just proved that. <laughs> I'm totally comfortable with that. Yeah. <laughs> What did yeah. you call yourself in that one meeting about, oh, were you paper whore? Is that what you said? Oh, paper pervert. Pa- <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. You just like know all the stuff. Okay, so wait. So how big can you buy that Terra skin? That's what's interesting about it is that, so I've noticed like, so at Concordia, I've been looking at what they have for supplies here. And because we're much closer to New York, we get, access to a totally different range of materials here. Mm. Um, and it used to be that the Terra skin was coming in like two big sizes um, out of Opus in Vancouver, but here they've got it on the roll. So mm. there's kind of no limit to what size you could work with, which is, is what I'm finding really interesting. And can you sew that like you can with a Tyvek or no? Yes, but you have to pierce it what I've done because it's it's got it's a different kind of composition it doesn't um it's almost like it's gummy Uh, like it stretches really in a super interesting way so you can hole punch it and it hangs onto that hole that hole won't stretch or bend or do anything it won't tear on you um but it'll give a little bit like okay yeah, it's a weird material. Like, I, it's worthwhile just picking up a sheet. It holds onto ink beautifully. Uh, it holds onto graphite beautifully. It's a really neat surface to work with. Hmm. Um, have you ever painted on it? Yeah, like I've used acrylic on it. Mm-hmm. It's and it goes really matte, like mm. beautifully flat. You can screen print on it. Yeah. Do you know off the top of your head how big they have it at Opus here? I feel like they have it in two sizes. One is like a small, smaller half sheet, like a 22 by 30. Yeah. And then I feel like they've got a bigger one that's like a 48 by something. Okay. Um, okay. But you can definitely try it. Like it, you could go bigger with it. Yeah. And the other thing too, like with you don't have to print on Tyvek if you're interested in like scanning your stuff and, and printing it out again. You could do tests on anything. Yeah. Like the Tyvek works for me because the bigger pieces I've been making have these kind of like frond plant fingers that stick out. And mm-hmm. so I wanted them to be able to be really stable. Like, so if someone brushed up against them, they weren't going to tear. Right. But if you're mounting the bigger things, like you brought up at the meeting, you were thinking about maybe mounting onto panel or canvas. You could totally do that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I'm wondering is like, because I find I put quite a bit of paint on, right? Because I sort of do those big mm-hmm. like blobs. And then right now I'm just working on that. Um, I never know how to say it, that me tense, you know, yep. that painted paper. But it warps because because oh, no. of the heat, because of the amount of paint that I put on. Yeah. So um, and it'll buckle just in that one spot. And then so then when you go to frame it, you know, nobody wants to use mats anymore. Everybody's doing those floating <laughs> things. So you can't hold it down. Um, so I just find that that's kind of what's been stopping me because I would like to go bigger, but I feel like, well, gosh, if this is already buckling, what's going to happen 
yeah. when the strokes are bigger, you know? Um, think you might be able to try because I use a, I'm doing, um, I do a lot of mixed media drawings and I, I soak that stuff. Like I throw ink and water and gesso um, at it and then I'll use like a, a shower it's not a scraper. It's like those things that the windshield wipers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like a trowel. And so I'm really loading up the paper. And if you tape all four sides and with strapping tape, which is like sometimes they call it fiber tape. Yeah, too. I've tried that. I cannot do it. So do you soak the paper first and then like strap it down? No, I use oh. it dry. I, I tape the paper down yeah. and I tape it to a plywood panel because it needs to be able to breathe a little bit. Like the moisture needs to slowly leave the paper again. Okay. And so you need a panel, like a wood panel underneath. It can't be MDF. It can't be fiberboard because that stuff hates moisture. Okay. Um, but if you do like a, a nice smooth, uh, like either a plywood or any kind of sheet wood panel. And okay. then you do, f- I can send you a little diagram. If you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. I think I know what you mean. Um, but so no. what paper, what kind of paper is that? That could be like any kind of cotton rag paper. So mm. a printmaker's paper is usually going to have a really high content of cotton rag fiber yeah. to it. And that's the stuff where you can really load it up with ink and moisture and paint. And then if you've got it taped down and burnished really well, you should be able to have it within like three to four days. It should go back to flat. Oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah, it's, just, it's a slow process, but I'm not sure if the metaint, like if they have a, a really high cotton rag fiber content. Like I only know them as almost like it's a chalkboardy yeah. surface. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's beautiful. The colors they have are gorgeous. But the, you're right. I think it might be better with dry media as opposed to wet. I think so too. Like I've I've heard so many people say like, oh, it's great for you know graphite and for colored pencil and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, what about huge blobs of gouache? No. <laughs> but it's just such beautiful. It's just so luxurious. Yeah. Like the texture so of it. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's lovely for smaller pieces. But I I've been doing 22 by 30s. Because I think yeah. that's as big as they sell it at the Opus in Kelowna anyway. Um, and I'm actually enjoying painting again. So I'm wanting to put more paint on instead of just one little stroke. And so, yeah, it's okay. just I think I've outgrown it maybe. Yeah. Because yeah. the other thing that you could do if you like the surface of the me taint, one of the things that I've started doing with drawing paper, and I love the surface. It's beyond what I was hoping for it. With the cotton rag paper that I use, you can gesso it like as you would a panel mm-hmm. and then sand it in the same way you would a panel. And it's all on the paper. And you can tint your gesso too so that if you wanted to get some of the color range that you're getting with the me taint, if you're doing that gessoing process with the cotton rag paper, as long as you're letting it dry in between the applications of the gesso, yeah. you can treat it like you would an actual panel. Ooh. I yeah. like that. How many oh, coats would you do? I usually do three or four, and yeah. I sand in between. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's just the nice thing about it is if you do more than three or four coats, it gets really thick. Yeah, 
So it, it doesn't have the flexibility that a paper piece would have. But if you stop at like three coats with the gesso and you're sanding it down in between, you get that like cool to the touch kind of gorgeous marble gesso surface. Mm. And it's just, it's so nice to work with. I know. I just find it like, I just love how it feels when the paint goes. It's just like, yeah. it's like a weird, like, not like it slips, but it's just like such a satisfying feeling in my hand when it does totally. that. and it doesn't have the same kind of resistance that yeah has. like that's yeah. what I found is I love working with mixed media but I don't enjoy working on canvas I find it really resistant me too I, I had somebody on the podcast we were talking about this and he said I forget who it was said that they sand it right down like like yeah. they buy the canvas but then they sand it sand it sand it, so that it they get rid of all those bumps yep and make it really <laughs> smooth like almost make it feel like paper Totally. But um, I, I think, I don't know if I have like a PTSD about canvases because of oh, I hear you. university, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, ah. And when I talked to Penny Lane too, I said, you know, do you think, is it more legit to be on canvas? And she was like, no. And nah. she said, I think what you're doing is much more beautiful on paper. And I think just figure it out, you know, don't, you don't have yeah. to go on panel or anything. No. And I think there's something really important about looking at the idea of why, mounting the collages on paper is actually really conceptually important to the work that you're making. I really do. Like it's, it's saying that you're honoring and it's cheeky, which is what I (laughs) I like about it too. Mm -hmm. You're saying that it's not a painting. You're using painting material outside of the regular environment that we would see it. And you're using it because of how it operates on paper. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that would be, I think it would be sad for a moment where we had to say, like, okay, I'm switching to canvas because now my work is getting important. Like that. No, I know that makes me really mad. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe in that. <laughs> well, see, and that's why I was like, is that just me being crazy with the PTSD, or is that like legit to feel like that? Because you know, it, yeah, it makes me, it, it kind of annoys me. It's just like I want to do it. Like yeah. This. Yeah, no, I think there there are all kinds of ways that you can do it the way you want to without feeling like you have to sacrifice the kinship that you have to paper. Yeah. Okay, so now I don't, you know, print print it out and scan it and whatever. I, like, mm-hmm. these are just my images. So if I'm yeah. applying, like, right now I use, like, a, a neutral pH by Lineco. It's like a an adhesive wet white glue and that yep. dries clear. And I really, really like it, especially yep. paper to paper. It just almost, they just become one. Yep. Is that cool to keep on? Oh yeah. 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 That's it. The line coat stuff. If it's a neutral pH, it's most likely what we would call like PVA polyvinyl acetate. And that stuff is good to go. Like okay. it is the neutral pH means that it's not going to change color. It's not going to shift over time. It's got the most properties that are beneficial for paper and for your collage material as you can get. Like that being said, like we don't know what's going to happen in 200 years. Yeah, but I'll be dead. I I don't care. (laughs) Honestly, that's the same feeling that I have about it. Like I do as much (laughs) as I possibly can to make sure that my work is not going to shift over time and that the color isn't going to fade. But like 200 years from now, man... We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and just think then if we, if we really do a good job, then art restorers won't have work anymore. Exactly. Right. 
then and that the, way they can come and they can figure <laughs> out like, oh, look, this was supposed to be blue, not light gray. You're welcome, <laughs> art restorers. <laughs> You're keeping that industry going. That's right. That's right. No, I know when I first started out, there was like all the archival things and it intimidated mm. me so much, you know, to... And so I, same as you, I do my very best, like, you know, I yeah. research it and I do the neutral pH and all these different things. But um, at the end of the day, yeah, we're going to be dead. So it's their problem. <laughs> yeah. No, it's kind of amazing to think about how your work will survive you. I like know. That's, for me, that's um, become something that, especially working with original source material, where you're like, okay, the person who originally held this magazine or this publication, they may not be with us anymore. And so you're taking that material and you're breathing new life into it. And that work is probably going to survive us. Like, it's, yeah. uh, I just think it's kind of, I, I think it's elegant, uh, morbid, but elegant. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I do too. I find like, I think that's why I love collage so much is that I always feel like you're taking these, honoring these things totally from another time and then making a new story out of it, you know, and I, I love that. Yeah. I find it fascinating. Well, and I think especially for anybody who's drawn to ideas of narrative and yeah. storytelling and like understanding that story is never one generation, it's always like, okay, well, who started that story? Who is telling that three generations ago? I feel the same way with collage. Like anybody who's drawn to an understanding of, of building storytelling moments, it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, what's so funny is this um, in the new book, um, I interviewed 45 <clears throat> women artists and so yeah. many of them, like so many of the, the painters and, you know, whatever, I, because I did these really in-depth interviews, I found out so many of them start in collage. So they, yeah. they build their, their compositions, their narratives, whatever, as a collage and totally. then replicate them as a painting. Yeah. That, that was so interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's, I think, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot over the last year and a half, two years, because collage has always been a part of my practice, but it's never been at the forefront until I started just being like, okay, the work that I'm doing, the initial stage of the process that I go through happens in collage. Why not show some of that initial ideation? Mm -hmm. Because some of it's really interesting. And I think there's, because historically collage has been, relegated to this area of like oh it's preparatory work it's things that we use to get to another place but there's really interesting juicy bits in there mm-hmm. that, yeah I know that's the thing is like have I told you the story about how I completely insulted everybody from the collage book that I did oh oh no <laughs> okay so listen to this well because I went to school and majored in painting yeah so in my little brain the only art that counted was painting. I hear you. Because that's what my degree said, right? And then when I had my giant 15-year hiatus and um, slowly started getting back into art making, I was doing collage. But again, it, in my mind, it didn't count as art, yeah. you know, because it wasn't painting. <clears throat> and I was trying to build up the confidence to be a painter again, so I was playing with collage and not really showing anybody and just doing my thing. So yeah. the folks at Chronicle knew that they knew I liked collage. And so when I was working on creative block, they said, Hey, will you write this other book about collage? So I said, sure. Um, so it's 30 artists from around the world, collage club. Yeah. <clears throat> so I was in Van- uh, Toronto promoting that book 
And I went out for dinner with a bunch of the artists from the book who I'd never met because, you know, you can do all these things through email these days. <laughs> so we all went out for dinner and I can be the jealous curator till the cows come home. But then oh. when I start talking about my own art, I don't, you know, I do now, but back then I never talked about my own work. So a couple of too many glasses of wine into the dinner, <laughs> <laughs> one of the guys brought up my work. Yeah. And I say to this group of collage artists, yeah, but it's just collage, so it doesn't really count. Uh. <laughs> oh. Danielle, uh. stop talking. And but they were like, uh, what? Uh. <laughs> and they were, <laughs> we had this really, I think we were out for dinner for like five hours, and they were basically like, no, you're just good at it. So in my mind, that's how I've always been. If I'm not struggling and writhing on the floor, it's not art, obviously. Like, I need to be crying and hating myself. Like, is that what I think, you know? And so they're like, no, you're just good at it. Why don't you just own it? And it's so funny. I've just been asked to speak. I think I told you guys in the meeting, I got asked to speak at... uh, to be the keynote at the Collage Magazine yeah, conference. Yeah, I'm so excited for you to do that. Me too. And I had such a good talk with the guy who's organizing it about all of this and that there's this weird, yeah, like shame is way too dramatic of a word, but there's this weird, like... We could talk about shade, maybe, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to shame. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like there's shade. this weird thing about collage where yeah. is it craft? You know, is it preparatory? Is it... Does it, does it count all these things? And it's like, I'm finally at the stage where I'm like, hell yeah, it does. And especially oh, I write about artists all the time. Well, like you, for example, who do amazing collage work. And in my mind, I think all of you guys are real artists. So yeah. I, I just so interesting that I put that on myself. Well, and I think it's an interesting, it's evidence of the stories that we have been told and that we keep telling ourselves because there's this canon And I think that canon serves art history really well, and it serves art historians, and it serves institutions really well, because they've been collecting paintings for however hundreds, however many hundreds of years. And it's so fascinating to me. And this is is not, um, I think painting can do really, really amazing things, but it's not the only way. Yeah. And I think when you've got, like, let's say we look at what's been collected by the Met for hundreds of years, so much of their collection resides in the power of painting and the power of sculpture that if all of a sudden we give equal merit to other ways of making, I think a lot of people feel that it's a binary, that if we value this new thing, it means it devalues other places. Right. And I'm just really more interested in the idea of leveling the playing field of like what's exciting about collage is that you have the power and potential to activate different ways of making, different ways of telling stories. It doesn't mean that it's worse or better or more or less important. It's just a different way of making. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, well, it's so funny because it's been around for a really long time, but... Mm -hmm. um, I just find lately, like in the last maybe five years, even shorter, even shorter than that, it just feels like it's been this really exciting explosion of like people. Did you see the post I did the other day about, um, oh man, I'm blanking on his name. That's terrible. That does the layers of glass. Dustin Yellen. Dustin Yellen. Totally. Totally. (laughs) Oh my God. 
I saw those when I was in Venice. Oh, wow. And I walked into, it was in the glass show, and I walked in, and I'm like, oh, cool, what the, you know, and it, they were on pedestals, so you could walk around them. So they are these crazy 3D collages sandwiched in layers and layers of glass, like, blew my mind, and that yeah. kind of thing is, and it's cut out books and magazines. It just yeah. happens to be on glass instead of paper. Well, crazy. one of the conversations that I've had with people lately, um, because a lot of people ask, like, oh, where do you get your source material? And one of the things that I find so interesting is that we're at this funny moment where most thrift stores refuse book donations at this point because they have so much excess. <laughs> and so we're at this really funny moment where cheap materials and found objects are really more about printed matter than they are any other kind of object. And that for me is always kind of an interesting barometer to see where artists turn their heads because it's like, well, where can I get material that I want to work with that's really affordable and in quantity so that yeah. I don't have to be precious with it? Yeah. And I think it's it's this funny moment that we're having where because so much of what people are interested in making with technology and cutting-edge stuff is happening virtually or digitally now, things that are really tangible especially books, are in this kind of, like, surplus mode. <laughs> I'm going to take, take my $5 to the thrift shop right after this and buy 500 books. Nice. <laughs> I find it so, like, like ridiculously satisfying, oh, especially in a small town. Like, our, the books in our thrift shop are 25 cents each. I know. Isn't that nuts? It's like a freaking gold mine. And sometimes I'll find one that I'm just like, oh, oh but I have to tell you, this was so funny. Okay, so I've been there the other day. Tuesday's yeah. the big day at our thrift shop because it's closed Sunday, Monday, and they restock. So on Tuesday, oh. it's the big day. So there's like a lineup outside the I thrift shop. I love it. I know. It's so <laughs> awesome. And so uh, I don't know why. I don't know if I was in a, in a bad mood, just a bit of a troublemaker mood. So there's <laughs> these two ladies looking at the stack of books where I am, yeah. older ladies, and um, they're looking at the gardening stuff. And... And uh, I said, oh, excuse me. And I sort of scooched in and took this book of roses. And like yeah. those, those rose books, are, the old ones, are so fantastic. And For so sure. I grabbed one. And the one lady, she says, oh, another book lover. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I could just feel like the, like the troublemaker in me boiling to the surface. And um, she goes, oh, I'm looking, I'm redoing my garden this spring. So I'm looking for, for books like that too. She, what are you going to do with that book? Slice and dice it. I know. And I was like, <laughs> the nice person in me would be like, oh, I just love roses. I'm just going to. And so I said, oh, I'm actually going to cut it up. I don't know. I couldn't control myself. I was like, oh, I'm just going to. And they both just like gasped. Yeah. And they were like, yeah. why? And I said, well, I'm an artist, so I'm going to turn them into artwork. And they were like, so you're going to destroy the book. And I said, well, I'm going to destroy the book, but in turn, make many beautiful pieces of art. But yep. the book will still be destroyed. And I was like, yep. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Have a great day. Have a great day. <laughs> I couldn't control myself. I just knew that was the reaction I was going to get. It was very entertaining to me. Oh, for sure. No, and it, it's like <laughs> that moment of, like, you can sit. I think for me, it's I've noticed when people look at my artwork and they realize that it's original source material, that I'm not like reprinting anything right. for a lot of the pieces, any of the ones that have the original source material, 
anybody who's a book lover has this like hand to heart (laughs) moment where they're they look at me and they look at the work and they look at me and they're like but how do you do it and I honestly like it 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 hurt a little bit at first too because I come from a long line of book lovers like that's it's in my blood but part of it is also realizing that you can have something on a shelf and you can fetishize it and romanticize it and never ever use it and never crack the spine or you can breathe some new life into it that's the way I see it too. When I first started, I would always photocopy the stuff or like yes. scan it and reprint it. And yeah. it just didn't count. It just, A, <laughs> it, the paper wasn't as nice. It didn't feel as good. Yeah. And um, B, it felt like a chicken move. I know. And that's part of it too. Like I've started doing like scanning backsides because I'm finding a lot more interesting kind of unexpected things happening with that. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm doing that as an exercise. But one of the things that I noticed, and this was like just printmaking background coming to life, is that with most of the books printed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they're printing it with lithographic presses, offset presses. And so how the ink sits and that four-color separation of the dot is so different than what's printed now and that with coated papers. And so because the technology has changed, the quality of that printed matter has changed drastically. And you just don't get the same feel. I I agree with you 100%. There's a quality you can, it's not even necessarily something that people are conscious about, but that color shift, man, it's, yeah, I I know for that. Me too. And then I just find that like, you know, all of my running around telling everybody else not to be precious and here (laughs) I am like scanning everything, you know, and I was just like, you know. I had Anthony Zinanos, I think he was like my second interview on the podcast three years ago. And I said, like, so do you really cut your stuff out of books? And he's like, yeah, just do it. Like, what are you doing? Like, and I think it is kind of ballsy. You know, I think it is like, here you go. It's like, I've got this one bird (laughs) and if I mess it up. And so whenever I teach collage classes, I very often will like get a really beautiful page from a book and I'll hold it up and everyone's ooing and aahing over whatever, you know, the sailboat or whatever. And then I rip it in half yeah. and I'm like, oops, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, okay, well now maybe I cut out both halves and I paste them on opposite sides of the page. And now there's this, totally. cool, you know, like there, you can't make mistakes. Right. And so you kind of have to just get the scissors out or rip or just do it and stop being like, like, don't, yeah. I mean, you were fetishizing it on the shelf and now you're doing it again. So it's like, just cut the freaking thing out. Yeah. I think there's part of it too is like, One of the things that I like about collage that I've found more and more interesting the more work that I do in the field is that when you cut something out, you have the space around what you've cut out. So you have the negative space. You have the flip side of the object, which sometimes is way more interesting than what you intended. But if you don't risk that cut, if you don't separate it, from its original context, you can't play with it. No, yeah. If you, if you keep it precious and you keep it intact and you never take risks with it, you don't get to be brave with the new story that you're telling. Yeah, There's and it's not your story until you exactly. make a move. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Amy, we could talk about collage <laughs> forever. I love it. Do um, you want to do the podcast now? 
Yeah, sure. Good. Do you have, I just want to make sure, like, do you have any other questions about going big with the work? Like, is there anything? No, that I, I think I just have to be you and like experiment a little <laughs> bit more and, yeah. um, and just, uh, but it's good to hear like the thing about, I, I'm going to try the tinted gesso and, um, yeah. you know, and I, I'm going to Opus on Friday. So I'll just do a little poking around and see, you know, if I can just grab some sample stuff. Perfect. Um, and just see, because I would love to go really big. I tried one on the weekend, and well, it was a 22 by 30, and uh, just it buckled and it was terrible. And I was like, you know what? I can't, I can't keep wasting this yeah. paper that is not working. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just... it might, yeah, it might be just a situation where you need to recreate what you like about the metaint, but yeah. on a printmaker's cotton rag paper. Yeah. I think that might free you up a bit. Mm -hmm. I tried doing it on. Um, wood panels I I, um, oh, yeah. I gessoed it and sanded it gessoed it sanded it it's because what I wanted to do is you know my one stroke paintings yeah that one stroke is really important and if I mess it up that piece of paper is trashed for now you know and I so I was like if I do that on a panel I'm not going to throw away a bunch of panels I mean I never even throw away the paper I chop it up and use it again but like what do you do yeah. with a panel so the other nice thing about making this surface was that I could get a wet cloth and wipe the paint right off Nice. And then I'm back to a blank canvas, you know. Um, but it just didn't, again, it was PTSD. I was like, ah, it's so <laughs> boxy and, like, university, Danielle. And I don't know, I just can't get my head around it yet. I think it's okay to acknowledge that the that painter's language of panel or canvas isn't serving you. No, it's just not. Yeah, and it's, I think it's okay to say, like, okay, you tried it, you gave it a go, you know that there's something really dynamic and exciting going on with the paperwork. So, and you can push cotton rag paper so that it performs like any other material. Okay. I love it. Okay. Well, I will report back. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I know me too. And actually I'm going to, as soon as we get off this call, I'm, I, I, there's all these pieces. Cause you know, I do all my queen pieces. Yeah. I love those. Me too. But I was just going, I was, I'm doing one, um, right now and so I was going through all my queens I've got the giant folder of the entire royal family all cut out <laughs> so I was going through it but it was the folder was flipped the other way so I was looking at the back sides of everything so it's queen oh, nice. but it's the back side so it's like a little bit of Prince Philip and part of a castle and so oh, I love cool. it so yeah. I think um even just you know that's one of the things I love about your work is your the flip sides and your your cutaways of the negative space are just stunning like that really makes the narrative come alive even more because it's not like here's a house and here's this it's like people yeah. have to kind of do some thinking and uh, there's a bit of work in there yeah yeah <laughs> it's really inspiring so um anyway we'll get to that Sounds now good. we have to okay starting now <clears throat> hello amy welcome to the podcast <laughs> hi danielle um okay so I'm going to put a whole bunch of that stuff in there because that was just too awesome not for people to hear. But, okay, so now I know all of your stuff. We're in the same Thrive group. Yes. So I know all the stuff that's happening with you now. Are you kind of sad about our Thrive group? Like, I think in April we get shaken up and put in different groups. I know. it's So I've been through this a couple times now where it's you, we wrap up the year and there's a little bit of, like, heartache with yeah. having to let go some of the members, knowing that some people will choose to stay on and some will go their own way. But it's... Um, 
But do the groups get changed or do we stay in the same kind of group and some people stay and some people go and we get new people? It's up to Jamie. I'm not sure what her, Jamie and Tara have a magic way of working this. And I actually really trust how they do this. I I trust them too. I have not been in a dud group yet. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that would be impossible. I think I'm just having this like feeling of about to graduate from high school and it's like, have a great summer. Miss you guys. I just went up for lunch with Carol and uh, okay. yeah, she's in the Okanagan. So we went and had lunch and it was so Brilliant. fun. And um, yeah, so it's been so amazing this year, like getting to know you guys and being able to share all of our Likewise. victories and struggles and just, you know, like things that you think you're on your own, like me going, well, how do I go bigger? And you're like, uh, I have 5,000 ideas. <laughs> it's just been so nice. And so I know all yeah. of your current stuff, but I don't know anything about your past. Like, so mm-hmm. I want to know where you grew up and if you were super artsy when you were little, I predict the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I grew up a little bit outside of Edmonton, Alberta. Um, I was in a little hamlet called Sherwood Park. Um, and then my mom's side of the family, uh, we also had a farm that my grandmother um, ran with my uncle. And so between being just outside of, of a bigger city, like really firmly rooted in suburbia, yeah. <laughs> um, and then just uh, really enjoying the prairies. Um, I, I think when I was growing up, I kind of, I thought they were very flat and very boring. Um, and moving around Canada showed me that I have a real I have such a heart song for that landscape. It's so beautiful. That's always the way, right? When you when you yeah. grow up, you have no idea the beauty around you because it's just, you know, yeah, there. it's just there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, and so, what kind of stuff did you? Were you crafty or? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I was obsessed with making books as a little kid. So I would do like cut out wrapping paper covers and I would draw the pictures and my mom would write in the text oh. for the stories. Um, and I, I was super into crafts and activities. And I think it, in around like grade two or three, my parents enrolled me in drawing classes because I wanted to draw everything. Um, <laughs> and I was really concerned with wanting to make accurate drawings as well. So as a young kid, I would get really frustrated with the fact that I could see what I wanted to draw in my mind, but like learning how to develop the muscle to translate that. Um, Did you really want to draw horses? No, I was not a horsey kid. Okay, I just thought, you know, prairies, wanting to draw perfectly. I was picturing like you wearing one of those airbrushed horse shirts, you know? (laughs) You know what I really wanted to draw? And this is, it's so funny to see the work that I make now. I always wanted to draw farm buildings. I always (gasps) wanted to draw houses and I wanted to draw architecture like skyscrapers, things that filled me with a sense of awe um, and anything that was like old and decrepit and broken down. I was into it. Wow. Uh, Yeah. It's really odd to look back at like what I was concerned with at that young age and to see that that's still stuff that I'm looking at. That's very cool. Did you, so did you love those drawing classes? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, um, I remember the first one that, 
for me was really like a palpable, tangible memory was at this place, I think it was called the Sutton Art House. And it was in this little uh, suburban town of Sherwood Park. And you would go to this beautiful old brick building. It was two or three floors with creaky wooden Mm. floors. And we would sit and there was instruction, but then there was also time where the teacher, bless her heart, would just sit you in front of a window and say, draw what you see. And it was the first time in my like young life that I remember anybody just being like, what you see is important. It's worth recording. It didn't have to be like a special subject matter. It didn't have to be something that you imagined. You could just record what your eyes saw. Mm, that's yeah. so nice. Yeah, it was really, it was really beautiful. Um, it was, and special that my parents were able to see that. And I think the instructor took them aside at one point and said, like, she's pretty obsessed <laughs> with drawing. Maybe you want to, maybe you want to cultivate that a little bit. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Are, are they artsy at all or are they just were super supportive of you? No, my parents are not very artistically inclined. They're the first people to admit that. So I don't feel like I'm, I'm outing them. <laughs> um, but yeah, my interest um, and and my desire to make art has been a bit of a mystery in the family. There's not a huge history or lineage of that. Hmm. So, yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a black sheep moment. That's um, that's actually really nice, though. I love uh, like there's something so special about that. We're all just born the way we're born, you know, yeah. with that either desire or not, or desire for other things. I love that it was just in you. And it's so crazy that you're still, like, doing the things you that intrigued you then. Yeah, it's something, um, I, I've thought about this a lot, like, what, why is it that there are these things that I keep poking at? And um, there's this, uh, I think it's Isaiah Berlin who is sort of famous for the quote of talking about their foxes and hedgehogs. Like foxes are interested in a lot of things, but hedgehogs dig really deep on one. And when I looked into this quote, I think it's actually like a Greek philosopher who is, who's originally attributed with that idea. But for me, I was like, there is, I have this idea that, is like it fundamentally makes me a hedgehog, but how I've pursued it over time is really foxy. So. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of that's sort of how I like to to think about it. My concerns have been consistent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, have you seen that movie, Maudie? No, I haven't. Oh yet. my god, you'd love it. There's she. I, I'm gonna butcher the quote, so I won't even try. But um, she basically paints looking out her window. And she says, you know, it's the whole world already framed. Yeah. And she said every day it's different. You know, sometimes a bird flies by, sometimes there's a butterfly, sometimes it's winter, sometimes it's spring, but I don't have to go anywhere, but look out my window because the world is already framed. And I, it's, oh my God, I bawled all through that movie. (laughs) FYI, do not watch it on a plane. Okay. Oh God. Good call. Yeah. I, I watched it at home, thank God, because I was a sobbing mess, and I went through, like, a box of Kleenex and, like, couldn't catch my breath by the end, and then I posted about it, and so many people were like, oh, my God, I just saw that on a plane, and I was so embarrassing because, like, strangers all around you, and you're just, like, sobbing. Anyway, oh, yeah. It's yeah, a good yeah. one, but that, that just reminded me of, you know, little Amy looking out the window. 
<laughs> with the world already framed. Yeah, it's it's funny because it's um, that idea of of landscape. Like I never thought that that was something that I was really actually interested in. And I was making this work um, when I was doing my master's of these books that I had taken apart and sewn all of the pages back together into bales. So these big, <sighs> like giant. Uh, they looked like hay bales at the end of it. But because I was thinking like, oh, I'm concerned about the book and I'm interested in the printed word and printed matter, I couldn't see the forest for the trees. Um, <laughs> and I had a studio visit at one point and they were like, so where are you from? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm originally from Alberta, but I've moved around a lot. And they were like, so you're making hay bales, eh? <laughs> and, and I was just like, oh. That is hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think like it's, yeah, what you see and what you grow up seeing informs us in such an intrinsic way. And you can choose to either pay attention to it or ignore it. But yeah, it's in there. It's It's in there. Yeah. DNA. (laughs) A little prairie girl. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. I love it. Um, Okay. So uh, you, so it was obvious that you were on your way to art school then. That was never yeah. gonna not be what you were doing right yeah no I um I I think there were all kinds of practical things that my uh extended family maybe would have loved to see me do <laughs> um and the plan like when I talk to my parents they're beautifully practical and it's actually really wonderful to have that influence alongside a maybe more imaginative nature <laughs> yeah yeah it's true <laughs> Um, and they were like, so what's your plan? And and when I was accepted into art school, um, they were living up north in Fort McMurray at the time. And I wanted to go down to Edmonton and I was going to live on my own again. And so we had sort of moved all around Western Canada and come full circle. And I said, well, I'm going to go to art school and I'm going to learn what it is to be an artist, but then I'm going to open up a gallery. Mm -hmm. Sure. (laughs) Um, I had like this really weirdly specific plan that after like the first five or six months of being in school, because I had enrolled, I was in design uh, because I thought that was going to be a way of manifesting career. Yes. Um, And and my uh, focus, it was design with a business marketing minor. Oh my God. Yeah. um, Which did not take hold. (laughs) Um, There was no hedgehogging going on there. Oh my gosh. No, no. And it was like, I would have to listen and if I could go back, because I'm an instructor now, and I, I think about how I was in some of those early classes, and it's kind of embarrassing. Like, I would have to listen to music in one earphone while I was in my economics classes just to stay awake. So, <gasps> like, it, it was just really clear it wasn't for me. And I was interested in the ideas, but not the practical application of it at all. Did you feel <laughs> panicked about that? Like, were you a little bit worried about the plan? I think my family was maybe a little more worried (laughs) about it than I was. Like, I had a a really good sense. Like, I knew what I was passionate about. And there was, I, you could not kick me out of the drawing studio. And I did feel quite a a particular passion for painting at first, um, which was exercised out of me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it, it was really clear to me what I felt 
like the best version of myself was and where I would find that. And it was always in the studio. Yeah. And so that, okay, so this was at U of A? Yeah, that's right. And so um, that's what I was so curious. And then you went to NASCAR, right, to do your master's? Yes, yeah, that's right. And so two questions. One, because, well, I don't know, there was no collage or anything offered when I was going to school. So were you doing, like, (laughs) installation or sculpture? Or what was your major through your BFA and MFA? So I started out... um, when I was doing my BFA after the first year of design. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> slash economics. Yeah, yeah. Um, it became really clear to me. I was like, okay, I'm going to switch my major into a full BFA as opposed to a Bachelor of Design. Um, and so I reapplied for the BFA program with a focus in painting. Um, and I was accepted to do that. And then after a full year of painting, it was so funny because I remember this really clearly. I'm not a particularly good painter um and I wanted to make my paintings look so flat like I wanted the I would labor over trying to make my brush strokes disappear and then we went on a studio tour to printmaking (laughs) (laughs) and they had all of these prints up uh kind of like an open studio so you could (laughs) see what the work was like and I was like oh damn it just does that like you can, it's just flat. And so for me, I was like, there was this massive explosive light bulb and I was really interested in how the studio and printmaking ran and all the machines and this kind of, and the paper. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, it just really quickly, um, I think it was like when you find your people and you're, you're just like, this is it. It was my jam. I was into it. And there's such a strong relationship between drawing and printmaking that for me, it was just a really easy switch at that point. Yeah. So you did your last couple of years in printmaking then? Yeah. Yeah. And I was a studio rat. They could not get rid of me. Yeah. Um, I loved the printmaking studio too. It was, and like, I I had, like, I didn't have have a lot of friends in my BFA, but I had friends in the printmaking studio, I think, because a lot of us went on to become graphic designers. Well, and there's, again, there's such a relationship, like the thing that design offered me was a love and a kinship with typography. I absolutely love typography. And so being able to see letterpress work happening in the print studio Mm. without the uh, imperative of a client roster, like you didn't have to answer to anybody being like, oh, that's great, but let's make it purple. Yeah. (laughs) It could just be this thing and I got to embrace the idea of bookmaking and bookbinding along with type work like it just it made so much sense to me well there's something so amazing about um the tactile nature of printmaking I was talking yeah. when I had lunch with Carol being a printmaker herself um yeah. that I I loved, I felt like it was a badge of honor when I would go to the pub night and my nails had ink all under them and people were like, <laughs> wash your hands. And I'm like, I tried. And you like, you scrub with that, you oh, know, yeah. that, that um, coarse soap. And I, it was like a badge of honor to always have ink under my nails. And uh, yeah, I really missed that. And I was saying, you know, to Carol that when you, it's tricky if you, like I graduated, I was a uh, painting and printmaking 
double major and I graduated and it's like suddenly you don't have access to mm-hmm. all of the equipment that you need, right? So I defaulted yeah. to painting and then blah, you know, all went to hell after that. But um, <laughs> it, if you can be connected with a school or if there's some yeah. way you, you know, a shared studio where you can actually have access to that, my gosh, you wouldn't be able to get me out of there now. That would be my thing. Yeah. No, and that's, I feel really lucky in the, in the last few years of my BFA, I worked with really extraordinary instructors who were interested in building a bridge between what was happening in the institution and connecting with artist-run centers. And Edmonton has such a strong printmaking community that the path to being able to continue making was made quite clear. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah. And without that, I think I really would have struggled because you're right. Any opportunity that I've had that doesn't have printmaking facilities, your practice has to shift because it's so much about access to the equipment. But because of that access and that kind of solidarity that you have in printmaking, you do find that the community is super strong. Right. Yeah, because you kind of need each other. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 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 Well, and so then did you take any time off between your BFA and your MFA or did you go right to Nova Scotia? No, I took time off. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was, um, the printmaking program was wonderful and super intense. And I wanted to know what it was like outside of the embrace of the institution to be making work. Like, what's it like when you don't have somebody telling you you need to hand that project in? Right. Um, Because I think that's honestly where a lot of people's practices kind of live and die is when you don't have somebody pressuring you for deadlines. Yeah, when it's all on you. Totally. It can get really hard. Um, And so I took a year off. I knew that I wanted to do my master's, but I also had to kind of figure out what that would look like and why I wanted to take it. Like I knew teaching was of interest to me. Mm, that um, was my second question when I said I've got two questions. I was wondering if the, <laughs> if the plan for the master's involved a nice, secure teaching job. Um, teaching job, yes. Nice, secure. <laughs> yeah, good point. Excellent point. Sorry about that. Yes. No, no, no. It's totally okay. Like I started my master's at a really interesting time culturally, like just in terms of global economics, because I started working on my master's, I think it would have been in 2005 or six. Mm. And I graduated just when the 2008 financial crisis was happening. Yay! Oh, I know. And so like, when I went in, a lot of my instructors and colleagues were like, this is the perfect time. There are so many people who are getting ready to retire. There's going to be a ton of jobs that are available in terms of growing towards something that was maybe tenure track. But when I graduated, the first thing to be shut down in a lot of institutions or universities was fine art department hiring. So It was, I mean, and I've had lots of really fantastic opportunities, and I think not having a tenure track job has actually allowed me to dig deeper into my practice and to find ways of making that viable. Mm -hmm. So, gift in disguise. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't want to sugarcoat the fact that sometimes, like, sessional teaching can be really unstable. Yeah. Yeah, because you don't know from semester to semester? Yeah, semester to semester, sometimes even course to course. Wow. Uh, And so I've traveled a lot for teaching opportunities. But again, those are like, I feel like those are really gifts in disguise because they've let me figure out 
what my practice is about when I don't have the stability of tried and true practice or a stable studio environment. So Yeah. Well, and also, you know, I've talked to a lot of teachers and sometimes it becomes really hard to focus on your own practice because yeah, you, you know, you're giving so much to the students and you're you're so involved with the school that it, and a lot of your creativity gets used up there. So you really have to work to make sure that you're still staying true to your own practice. And, you know, totally. maybe it is that silver lining where it's like, well, if you don't have that stability, you're giving more time to yourself. Yeah. And it's, it's allowed me to make teaching sessionally has allowed me to make, especially within the last couple of years, um, some really focused choices about like I took a six month sort of self created sabbatical um well I remember because when we started in our thrive group you were working at Emily Carr in Vancouver and then you made the big choice to not keep teaching in September that's right yeah so I had some really good show opportunities coming up and I knew that in order to do what I wanted to do with those exhibitions I was going to have to not be teaching and kind of having two full-time jobs on the go yeah um, were I you get a, panicked or were you excited or both? Um, I'm always a little bit. It's I like to, <laughs> I think of it like low rumble panic. <laughs> <laughs> um, just just on a simmer. <laughs> yeah, always on a bit of a simmer. Um, <laughs> but that nervous energy helps me. Like that's what drives me to go to studio. Um, so <laughs> there's always a little bit of low rumble panic going on. Right. So this was nothing new. It's just like, just went up to medium for a little bit. and But it's been yeah. going great, right? It has. It's been, it's been a really exceptional year. And yeah, I think... You've just been making... Well, not only are you showing, but I feel like your work has like crazy evolved. I think it has too. Um, and it's exciting to see that. Like, it's hard to recognize it when you're in the middle of it. Like, when your studio work is changing and what I'm interested in is the goalposts are shifting a little bit. Right. Um, but what it's allowed me to do, like, I took a break uh, for a month and went out of country with my partner for a month. And so I literally did not have studio practice for a month. And for me... That was like, we went from low rumble panic to like full on panic. <laughs> By the and end of the month, were you like twitching? Oh, totally itchy. Yeah. Like quite literally just, I needed to get back into studio. But what it's also done is it's let me realize like, okay, what are the things that I'm still interested in? What am I still wanting to poke at so that I'm not just riding the wave of like, okay, let's make work. We've got to produce stuff. The, the royal we, meaning me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got I've to produce stuff for a show coming up. Um, and it's actually let me dig back into research, which is something that's always been super important to how I structure practice and concept and idea. Um, so, it, yeah, it's been super fruitful. Yeah, that's so good. I, I just had Pippa Young on last week, and she was talking yeah. about taking a six-month break because she felt like, I think we were talking about this in, the, in our meeting the other day, is that yeah. she just felt like she was got to a point where she was just producing, 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 and not, she never had time to think. And just like you, she's a big researcher. And she was just like, ah, like, you know, you'd become a machine instead of the creative, you know, person that you are. And so it's, it's so good to have those breaks and to get itchy. Like it lets you know that you're doing the right thing. If you don't miss it, that might be a problem. 
<laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's, I knew I needed a break because for the first couple of weeks of being away, I was just like, wow, this is really nice. Um, <laughs> and I think there's always a bit of fear for me anyways, where I'm like, what if I never have ideas again? Yeah. Like if you, if you stop that momentum, if you take that break, what if that passion or drive never comes back? But I think I am getting to a point in my practice now where I feel fairly comfortable. There is always stuff that I'm fascinated with. Yeah. There's something's always, all, yeah. It's just yeah. who you are. Well, that's what I was saying in the meeting. Um, for anybody that's listening that, that doesn't know what Thrive is, it's this, um, well, I think we were the first online group, right? Yeah, one of the first online groups yeah. for sure. So it started in Vancouver and it was they had groups of ten women that would get together and have, you know, in person meetings and then um Jamie and Tara who run it felt like, you know, oh, it's not they don't didn't want to just be Vancouver. So they started online yeah. groups. So we were the guinea pigs in this online group and so we have got somebody in Montreal and Victoria and I'm in the Okanagan and Anyway, it's been, and now you're in Montreal. You didn't start That's out there. That's true. But, <clears throat> and it's been so, so great. And so every month we get together <clears throat> just for a two-hour meeting and talk about, um, you know, we have six questions that we go through. So things we're excited about, things we're inspired about, things we need advice on. And this last meeting, I was like, <clears throat> all of my answers were like, I don't know. I've got nothing. <laughs> I'm in LL. Like, I just, I think is just finishing the book and I don't have any big art projects on the go. And normally in the past, I would be absolutely full boil panic that it's over. I will never yeah. make again. And I've gotten, maybe it's because I'm getting old, but I've gotten to the point where I'm just like, it's fine. Like some, you know, I will, the, the, you know, the excitement will come back new ideas will come and I'm just going to try and enjoy this lull and be okay with it. Yeah. It's I like to think of that to too. Totally. It's getting wise. I don't know if that's getting old. I yeah. think that's getting wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've done it enough times. Like there's been enough times where you think ideas won't come and then they do that you can yeah. prove to yourself over and over. That's like, okay, fine. I know it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. And that you need to take time to put stuff back in the well too. Yeah. Like, yeah. If, if you go through a period where you're producing and, and making a lot of work, just how essential it is to give yourself an opportunity to fill back up again. Yeah, we're just, we're human. You know, you can't be a machine constantly or else it's really just not going to be fun. And No, and yeah. I think that's also when, I like I noticed towards the end of that period where I was just, I had like consecutive deadlines that I was working towards, the ideas aren't as fresh. Like when I'm yeah. making in that state, it's like, oh, I've got this tool belt of tricks and I know that I can use some of these and that the work will be uh, satisfactory. But my sense of curiosity and discovery at that point was suffering a little bit. And I think that's worth paying attention to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're so inspiring. Like, I just love how um, you're like, you're such a great practicing artist, but you're such a good teacher too. Like you, Thanks, Danielle. You've clearly thought about so much stuff, and you, you are a little hedgehog. You're a little foxy hedgehog. <laughs> I'm a possum. We've got all of our little animals. It's I, nice to have a spirit animal. That's right. I'm, I want to change my... I joke about... Uh, I don't know if I've ever brought this up on the podcast. I bring it up in every Thrive meeting where I talk about chickening out and that uh, when people used to email me up and say, oh, I love your art. Can I buy it? I would just play dead like a possum and like not write them back. It's like, why not write them back, you idiot? Like what? So anyway, I'm going to trade in. I Well, the possum's already long gone, but I'm going to, 
abandon the possum completely for a foxy hedgehog because I think it's nice. much more much more productive. Um, okay, so before we do the not so speedy speed run, I want to ask you about. You seem to be the queen of residencies. Ah, <laughs> you're always I, I going somewhere cool. Yeah, you sure do. You're always going somewhere cool, and so um, I know of a couple of them. Um, maybe tell us if there's a favorite one, and also. What I'm curious about, because um, I went to the University of Wisconsin last fall for a week, and I was teaching, mm-hmm. but I basically had a studio, sort of like a little mini one-week residency, and I kind of felt like a deer in headlights, because yeah. I had, they put all these materials in this gigantic studio, I had a week to just, I had studio time allotted every day, and I was like, oh my god, yeah. like now what, do you ever feel like that, or do you go to, do you go to residencies with a plan? Um the the short answer is yes i definitely feel when i start a residency cuz it's like flipping the page or starting a new sketchbook you're just like oh yeah. <laughs> um and there's always a little bit of what have i done um <laughs> <laughs> but i think that's also really healthy um because if you're outside of your comfort zone it forces you to look at things in a new way and that that's for me what residencies have offered and what I've learned from having that as a regular part of my practice is that it takes me outside of the comfort zone of my everyday it makes me figure out things like how to take transit in a new city or <laughs> just how to feed myself in a new city and so like these very basic human things that you need to learn offer you a totally different lens on what you bring back into studio. Mm. Um, and it's without that residency, I, I tend to be somebody who can nest really quickly. And so like, <laughs> I'll just hunker down and I'll take the same route to studio every day and I'll do the same thing and dig really deep on that. But the residency forces me to shake things up again. Yeah, that's really and, good. Cause I, I, as I've gotten wiser, okay, <laughs> AKA older, I'm really, really good to never leave my house. Yeah. Which I've got a lovely studio. I've got a view of the lake. Like I could happily, I've got a great coffee maker. You know, I can happily just not leave, which is not good yeah, for inspiration, you. you know? Um, and so do you do, how many, how many residencies do you think you do a year? Um, what I've been doing lately is doing longer residencies that allow me to step away from practice for a bit more of a concentrated amount of time. And so I've been averaging, I took a break after I did a residency out in Harrison Hot Springs mm-hmm. um, with the Kent Harrison Arts Council. They have a really lovely residency where you live in a ranger station. That one sounded <laughs> for, amazing. That yeah. Sounded, I think I wrote a post about the work that you did there because, did. yeah, it's just so, it just sounded dreamy, but it was a bit, like, didn't you, weren't you a bit freaked out at the beginning? Absolutely. And it it wasn't without its challenges. Like it was really quite isolating Um, because once you sort of get comfortable with the routine and you've established some new habits for yourself and you're in studio, it was just isolated enough where um, there wasn't a lot around other than nature. Right. (laughs) I'm I'm putting air quotes around nature. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, it was definitely a challenge, and the isolation was something that I felt 
pretty hard. And so when I came back from that one and, and reintroduced myself into the city of Vancouver, I, I took a break from doing residencies for about two years. Oh, okay. Um, just how, kind of how, long one, how long was that Harrison one? That was a full year. So You were there for a year? Yeah, yeah. That was a oh full, a full calendar year. Yeah. So it's like I've been on residencies that are shorter, like more uh, concentrated two or three week scenarios. Um, Like when I did my survival training residency, that one was with a group um, out in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia called Survival Systems. And that one was two weeks with their basic training program. Um, and then I've done the longer stuff too. Like right now I'm in Montreal. Um, I'm here for essentially it'll be four and a half months by the time I'm, so I'm with, uh, Concordia university in their print media department and I'm doing a residency with them for the semester. Wow. And so when you get there, do you, because you are a researcher, do you, do you spend the first part researching or are you coming there with research you've done before you arrive? It's a little bit of both. Like what I've learned to do, my the very first residency that I did outside of where I was living, I went to Vermont um, with the Vermont Studio Center. And oh, I had, I've heard that's amazing. Oh, it was so dreamy. Um, and I mean, to be honest, it was one of those scenarios where it was so luxurious that I every residency <laughs> since then <laughs> has been uh, in comparison to that moment. Um, but uh, I had such a concrete plan that I actually, and I made work that I was really excited about and had a lot of things percolating, but I I really was kind of disappointed that I didn't fulfill this super concrete plan. Mm. And so since then, what I've done is I kind of have a focus or a topic that I bring into a residency with me. And I know that that's what I want to be aiming at, but I let the work and the ideas and the concepts come to fruition through my time there rather than coming in with a super specific plan of like, I'm going to make this and do this. Yeah. Because then you could be anywhere. What's the point? Like if you're not sort of soaking in what, you know, the, the location you've put yourself in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, And that's, I've, I've learned to talk about my work in, in some ways um, because I do have a really, what I would call transdisciplinary practice. Like sometimes if the work needs to be performance, it's performance. If it needs to be print, it's print. If it needs to be collage, it's collage. Mm -hmm. And what that's allowed me to do is to make work that's site responsive. So, which I think of as a bit different than site specific. It's not that it's like a piece of sculpture that lives in one place. It's that I'm soaking up either the archives or research or looking at studies of the place that I'm in and letting that really percolate into the work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that said, what are you doing in Montreal? Um, so right now, it's so funny because I'm I'm in my studio right now and I am literally surrounded by paper cuts. Uh, (laughs) um, So what I've been doing is I've actually started screen printing my own collage material. So rather than working from original sources like books, um, I've been screen printing uh, source material that I'm interested in and then seeing what happens through the printing process to shift or change that material. And now I'm in the stage where I'm cutting everything out. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it's pretty juicy. I, <laughs> I'm really excited about it. It's a nice phase where there's 
I've got a couple months left, so I'm at that kind of in-between point where I'm excited about what's happening, but I don't know what the finished work is going to look like yet. So yeah. There's, yeah, there's good drive to come to studio every day. Yeah, and you mentioned at the beginning, um, when we first picked up, there's an espresso machine there, right? Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all you need. You need your screen printing facilities. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and an espresso machine, the end. Yeah, no, that's, I, uh, I'm not a fancy lady, um, but having a bit of coffee and some really nice paper uh, is pretty much all I need. Yeah, I would fight you for both. Oh, I mean, there's plenty to share. Okay, phew, that just all sounds so, like, I could just plop myself right there and just, I would take your scraps and like, it just sounds amazing. I When my son's a little bit older and doesn't care where I am, I would love to start doing more residencies and stuff yeah. because um, even just having, I mean, it wasn't a residency, but that thing in Wisconsin yeah. or even when I went to Venice last year for two weeks. And again, I was teaching and I, I mean, I had a few art supplies with me, but not really, but I had a sketchbook. So I, I kept notes of everything so that when I got home, I could try and make work based on the things I was thinking about while I was there. But totally. it was like these little tastes of, of, an immersive residency, and uh, Charlie's still too, I mean, he, he might not care, actually, at this point, but I could, I could not be away from him for a month, um, Yeah, and Greg would well, probably kill me. You know what's coming up in a lot of residency postings that I've seen recently that I think is very exciting is that people are recognizing that if you are a person with a family, that that is not a barrier that should keep you from doing residencies. I was looking at one in Edmonton recently, actually, where they were saying families are welcome to apply. And for people who are quite young, they've got childcare provided. So I, I think it's really exciting to be recognizing that residencies should not be open only to people who are um, seemingly independent that right, it's, yeah. it's important to acknowledge that just because you have a family doesn't mean that that should be a roadblock yeah you know I just I was looking at the Banff ones yeah because they're they're all of their applications are coming out right now FYI okay. to everyone that's listening because my god I would love to do one of those um everybody go and check it out because they have them for all different things like there's yeah. one for writers there's one for curators there's one for painters there's like all sort nature inspired all these different things and mm -hmm. um there, I think the one I was looking at is June through July, and Charlie's still in school, but it would be so fun one summer if I could get, like, all of July or all of August and just take them with me. Totally. And they can just explore and do all their stuff, and, you know, then we meet back up for dinners and all these, like, that would be perfection. So one day, yeah. that's the dream. And oh, you're my inspiration it, for that. Oh, well, and it, it it, without a word of a lie, it does take a lot of planning. So it's kind of like the same way that you would organize your life to take a big vacation. Yeah. You need, you can't just, I mean, I certainly don't have the independent wealth <laughs> to be able to just like pick up and go. Right. So it just, you have to figure out what you want to prioritize and then aim for it. Yeah. Oh, and I interrupted you earlier. So how, so oh, no. you took that break for, two, you didn't do any for two years. And then now, so are you trying to do like one a year? Yeah, that's sort of been, I think what I might do is um, after Montreal, I also have a, a series of show deadlines that I'm working into 2019, 2020 wow. on. So... <laughs> 
So, which is exciting um, to be able to know what is happening at least a year in advance because it's taken a long time for that to happen. Um, for, for me to have a calendar where I can say, okay, I know what I'm going to be working on for the next year. Um, and so, so I exciting. Yeah, I'm going to take a little bit of a break from doing residencies also because it's like I miss my partner and I miss my cats. And that's <laughs> just to be to be really real about it is that um, is that it does it it asks a different kind of attentiveness to relationships and friendships when you're away. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, I think I'll, I'll put some of that back in the well, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then we'll see what happens if there's something that really piques my curiosity. Um, that's usually how I apply. Yeah. <laughs> Your little foxiness is like, ooh, let's go there for a little bit. Totally. Yeah. Here's the first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, well, that's a perfect segue into my last question. So um, are there any shows coming up that people should know about that they can go and see? Because I do the big post and I'll put links to anything. So is there anything you want people oh, to know great. about? Um, well, I'm working with three other really lovely, amazing collage artists uh, coming up for a show at the South Main, the Soma Gallery in Vancouver. Okay. Um, and that's going to be happening in June. Um, so I'll end my residency, scoot back to Vancouver, and we'll put up that show. Okay. Um, and I've got another exhibition coming up in Maple Ridge with the ACT Gallery, oh, ACT. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then working towards a fall show with Pendulum Gallery in Vancouver as well. So that's sort of the close target okay. that I'm working towards. I love it. Oh, this is so good. You're, I just, so happy we did this. Oh, likewise, Danielle. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's so fun. Okay, so now, not so speedy speed round. Excellent. I've already answered this question, <laughs> coffee or tea? Oh, coffee all the time. Yeah. And then I, the I had a follow-up. <laughs> when you're home, so not in a residency, when you're home, yep. do you go out for that coffee or do you have, do you make it at home or make it in the studio? Um, so I do a morning coffee at home, um, because that is what gets me out of bed quite literally. Um, and then I'll usually have, I've noticed because I am wise now, I stopped drinking coffee around two o'clock in the afternoon. After that, I'll maybe have a latte, but before then it's usually high octane espressos or Americanos. And I've got a couple little spots near studio that are good that just kind of force me to go out and have a walk. Um, but I, I'm, I'm a a pretty, I, my heart bleeds coffee. Yeah. Same here. But it is so nice. Like now that that's what I used to do when we lived in bigger places, do the one at home and then it is so nice to get out and get some fresh yeah. air and like just the ritual, like half the time I don't even finish exactly. the coffee. It's just the ritual of like going and getting it, whatever. Um, but now living, you know, where I live, it's just, I just make it at home. So that's uh, so why I was like, you're in Montreal right now, sir. Are you going to get a fancy latte later? <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. There's, and it's funny because I've been meeting some new people and when we go on like new friend of friend dates, yeah. You know, where is their good coffee yeah. in the neighborhood? <laughs> um, so that is my prime directive. <laughs> oh, see, yeah, we are soul sisters, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> okay, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this. If you weren't an artist, what would you be? 
I really, it's, oh, see, it's so funny. I, for a while, I really wanted to be a botanical illustrator, but that's still an artist. That doesn't count like, yet. <laughs> uh, economist, are you going to go back and study your business? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd be a writer, maybe. Writing is um, always a really important part of my practice. And, and I, I think that's something for me, like I really believe in the power of words. Yeah, well, you are such an eloquent speaker. That's why I always love in our meetings, like, you have such a, and you, this is why I think you're a good teacher too, you have such an um, eloquent, succinct way of saying things. Well, thanks, Daniel. And so I think you would be an amazing writer as well. Okay, check. Um, <laughs> now, right now, you've got some very perfect, precise bangs going on. Oh, you're such a sweetie. Thank you. <laughs> they're, they're immaculate, and I love them. So now I need to know the worst haircut you've ever had Approximate oh age and a vivid description, please. Oh, there are so many, Danielle. Like, <laughs> me too, me too, me too. Um, Being children I, of the 80s is a really bad Yeah, there's some choice uh, photos of me, like school photos, with a crimped ponytail literally coming out of the side of my head. Um, just side one. pony, side pony. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the worst, I gave myself a haircut in first year university because uh, oh, no. <laughs> I actually was really, I had a terrible critique and I didn't have good coping mechanisms for it. And so I dyed and cut my own hair and I went to a hairdresser afterwards because it was a disaster. <laughs> oh my God, what color did you dye it? Oh, uh, I think at that point it was like, kind of a fire engine red like sure. an orangey red um oh but the hairdresser was just like please don't ever do this again <laughs> like just don't don't do this to yourself <laughs> oh my gosh that's so funny around that same time do you remember henna that you could buy from oh yeah shop? yeah and it kind of smelled like horse food oh yeah yeah, yeah. and so <laughs> I used to always dye my own in the shower in red so I would just like leave the shower stall like this weird auburny color that smelled like a horse stall and I would dye it red and then um it was during like when friends first started so I of course needed the Rachel cut yes <laughs> so I went but I, I didn't want to wait for like a proper appointment so I went to the mall oh <gasps> no yeah I did <laughs> and I had pre-dyed it because I was ready I'm like here's the color I like now you just give me the Rachel cut he I had a mullet oh my gosh it was Please tell me yeah. there's photos no Hell no, there's no photos. I was mortified. I, although that was a good year for hats for me, though. I, I I wore a lot of hats because it was it was short on the top and the sides. Like it took a, and long in the back. You know the mullet. That is the mullet. Business in the front, party in the back, and it took a really long time for the business in the front to catch up. It was yeah horrifying. Yeah, it is amazing how quickly a haircut can occur and how long you have to wait it out. Like that's, and I, I just want to give a shout out to um, I I'm working with really an amazing salon right now, Coop Salon in Vancouver, because they're just they're the best. What are you doing with them? <laughs> oh, I just they, Chelsea cuts my hair. Oh. <laughs> well, those bangs, I'm telling you, those are top notch, and um, clearly you did not do them yourself after a critique because they are no. perfection. <laughs> Okay, good. <laughs> um, okay, this is the last one. Would you rather make art using a rock or tree bark? Mm. And you can't say both. 
Because I know you would incorporate both somehow, so you have to pick. You're so funny, because I was like, how could I use both? I know, I already uh, knew that. Okay, so I'm going to say, I'm going to look at this from a tool perspective. What can I use it, at, like, how can I use this as a tool? And you can actually pull really beautiful prints with using river stones as, a, like, instead of a press. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to take the rock because okay. I think it's a great tool. <laughs> <laughs> See, I knew you would actually think about this yeah, and come up with a great answer. That's why I put that on there. That wasn't even a Charlie would you rather. Usually I use one of Charlie's uh, crazy would you, that, that was a Danielle would you rather. I like it though. Cause, and I mean, shout out to, there's a lot that you can do that's absolutely stunning with a nice piece of, of birch bark. So. Sure. Well, it was because I was thinking about your Harrison. Um, yeah. Were you collecting rocks on your, cause there was nowhere to, there was nothing you could, <laughs> you weren't wandering to get a latte anywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I had at one point, so the studio, the interesting thing about the residency there is that the space was split half, half apartment and studio. And in the studio, every time I went for a walk, I would be dragging back sticks and weird stuff that I found washed up on the shore. And a lot of the ideas that I built out of that came from collecting what you could just call flotsam and jetsam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I love that. And I love that you collected it. So that's when I was thinking these questions for you. I was like, I know what she, she'll know what to do with rock, rocks and bark. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I I think even though I don't, I wouldn't call myself like a traditional landscape artist. That's highly, highly influential. Yeah. Well, you're a good Canadian girl. You have to, you have to live off the land a little bit. Absolutely. Well, it's a key principle of survivalism. There you go. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you are a rare and amazing creature, Amy. Uh, thanks, Danielle. Likewise. This was such a fun party. I'm keeping in that, in that whole thing at the beginning. Oh, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm just keeping that all in because that was meant for me because um, I need help going big. And um, But it, there's so many gems in there that it would be a disservice to cut it out. So this is going to be, ooh, this is the longest podcast in Art for Your Ear history. Oh, get out. Yeah. But people will be thrilled because, I, you know, I've been doing them around, like, well, when I first started, they were 25 minutes, and people were like, make yeah. them longer. So I was like, okay. So now they're between 45 minutes to an hour, and people are like, make them longer. <laughs> like They're insatiable. Uh, well, oh, thanks. <laughs> I know. I But the people I get and the stories, it's, it is kind of hard sometimes to stop after an hour. Well, and you're a fantastic conversationalist, so <laughs> kudos Amy. to you, too. <laughs> well, when I, I did not want to do a podcast, and Greg totally peer pressured me into it. And uh, I was like, oh, so much technology. And he's like, but you get to make new friends and you get to talk to people about art. And I was like, okay, I'm in. That's a really nice peer pressure moment. That's pretty fantastic. He's like, I'll handle the technology. You just go make new friends. And I was like, okay, I can do that. I can do that. We yeah. done and done. Yeah. Anyway, well, I've taken up an hour and a half of your studio time. So go and cut out those screen prints. And uh, I will, I'm going to put your Instagram uh, handle into this post too so that people can follow along and see what you're doing in Montreal. And I'll put all that um, upcoming show info in there so it's all in one juicy spot. That sounds excellent. Yay. Thank you so much, Amy, for the advice for me and for this really great talk. And um, just enjoy Montreal to its fullest. 
Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you, Danielle. I know. In, in the meetings, we never get to go for an hour and a half like this. I know. I know. <laughs> um, well, anyway, that was so great, and I'm, I'm sure everyone's going to get so much out of it. And uh, I'll see you at the next meeting. Absolutely. I will see you online. Okay. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Take care, my dear. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that is why I love Amy. She is a wealth of information, so talented, so thoughtful, and so much fun to talk to. Thank you to Amy for taking time away from her studio work to talk to me. Thanks to Sachi Art and Thrive Mastermind for supporting this episode. And huge thanks to you for listening. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then.